And for everybody who's able, would you please stand and join me in the reading of the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could no, not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk but that they may know that the Son of Man has... Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we consider uh, today a passage that perhaps to some of us is uh, familiar, uh, perhaps to others of us not, would you help us to, to see Jesus more clearly? Would you help us to see uh, your goodness and your grace and your mercy? And would you work in us that we would turn to you, that we would believe afresh, that we would see perhaps what your calling us to, uh, how you're calling us to rest, how you're calling us to, to turn. Um, Lord, would you be with us, and would you apply these words to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're in a series in Mark uh, this summer while I'm here, which is one more week, and we're asking this question of what does it look like to know and follow Jesus in a busy world? Uh, last week I said that Mark's gospel could be considered the busy gospel because of how much it focuses on Jesus in action, what Jesus is doing. And today's text starts uh, with Jesus back in Capernaum. The last time that Jesus was in Capernaum, he taught in a synagogue, he cast a demon out of a man, 
he healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then he was at this house, at Peter's mother-in-law's house, and the whole town is gathered at, his, at this door, and they're wanting healing and help from Jesus. So now Jesus is back. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He's back. Word's gotten out that he's back home, and the crowd this time is so big that now there's not even room at the door. So it's flooding with people. It's jam-packed, and Mark tells us that Jesus is preaching the Word, which means that he's preaching that message from Mark 1:15, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the good news. He's calling people to turn, to believe, to have faith in him. And in the midst of this packed out crowd, there's four guys carry their paralyzed friend, dig through a roof, lower him before Jesus, and Jesus, Mark tells us, sees faith. And this is significant because when Jesus called for us to turn and believe in Mark 1.15, you could put it, you could translate it, repent and have faith. And this is the first time that Mark has, in a sense, singled out and said, and this is what faith looks like right here. So we're going to consider... Uh, faith today, uh, what it looks like to believe in Jesus. And whether you're here and you are someone who's been a Christian for as long as you can remember, or whether you're here and uh, it's the first time you've been in a church in a while, if that's, if that's the case, we're really glad you're here with us. We all need to return to the basics. We all need to return to the fundamentals. Faith is how we connect with Jesus. It's the instrument by which we relate to Jesus, and it's fundamental to a life of knowing him and following him. Uh, just to illustrate this, when I was in high school, I uh, was a jazz guitarist, and I took lessons with this guy in Chicago named Bobby Broom, and maybe someone in here has actually heard of him, but if you've not heard of him, I'm pretty sure you've heard of Miles Davis, or Sonny Rollins, or perhaps Wynton Marcellus. Bobby played with those guys. So he is like a real jazz guitarist. I drove an hour into the city. I paid a lot of money to have lessons with this guy. And when I went in, I was expecting at first that like he was gonna show me the coolest stuff on the guitar that I had never even imagined. The new chords, new licks, all this sort of thing. For the first month, we did scales. Major scales. I was to practice scales two hours a day. And there was this kind of underlying assumption for him, you never graduate from the basics. You never graduate from the basics of music. You have to have this. And in a very similar way for us today, as we consider a passage that's very familiar and that is really centered on faith and faith in Jesus, we never graduate from the basics of the gospel. So with that in mind, let's look at Mark chapter 2. And I want to consider three things this morning. Uh, first, I want us to think about the faith that approaches Jesus. Second, the healing Jesus gives. And then third, the cost of that healing. So the faith that approaches Jesus, the healing Jesus gives, and the cost of that healing. First, the faith that approaches Jesus. What does faith look like? Faith is more than knowledge and assent. It's more than knowing information and then agreeing that that information is true. Faith 
we see in this passage, faith is trust, and we see what trust does. So I want us to look at these guys in our story and three facets of faith that I think we can see here. Faith is active dependence, it is lived with others, and it is public. So let's look at each of these. Uh, First, faith is active dependence. Think about the guys in our story. I want you to try to imagine yourself as one of these friends. You are trying to get your paralyzed friend to Jesus. You believe that Jesus can help him. But now you come to this house where Jesus is, and there's this huge crowd of people. And how are you going to get there? How are you going to get in front of Jesus? Do you just go home and say, well, maybe we'll try next week? Verse 4 tells us what these guys did, and I want you to think about that. I want you to slow down and think about what Mark is describing here. You're there, you're one of these friends, and you're looking at each other, and there's this huge crowd, and you can't get before Jesus, and so you say, let's take off the roof. So you start by going to the side of this house and there's these stairs that would lead up and you, and you need to get your paralyzed friend up there. But of course, like he's dead weight. So you're tr- trying to figure out how to get him on top of this roof. Then you're on this kind of flat roof and you're looking for a spot where you can start to dig and then you need to dig through that spot. Then you need to get that big enough that you can actually lower this dude right in front of Jesus. This is a picture of active dependence. I need Jesus. I have to get to him. I am desperate for him. I can't do anything apart from him. And I think this is something that probably a lot of us struggle with. And perhaps one reason is when we picture maturity, when we think about maturity, we don't usually think of dependence, but we think of independence. Right, so when you, are, when you are growing up, or if you are grown up, when you are thinking about what does it look like to mature, it looks like I move out of my parents' house, I get a job, I'm secure, I'm preparing for retirement. In a sense, you're becoming more and more independent and more and more self-sufficient. I don't need anybody, I'm okay. But that doesn't fit Christian growth. That doesn't fit the gospel. How could it possibly, this is a quote from a pastor from about 500 years ago, Uh, it's very well put, it's a little philosophical, but just listen to what he says about who we are. He says this, our very being is nothing but subsistence in God, which is the same thing that Paul says in Acts 17 when he says, in God we live and move and have our being. We are dependent. We are needy. We are helpless. That's who we are, created. It's not bad. It's good. But of course, we tend to move away from that for a number of different reasons, and we create, in a sense, a fantasy world that we live in where we don't have to be dependent or at least not feel like we are, and we can feel self-sufficient. But the more that we see ourselves rightly, in a sense, the more that we're growing, we're going to see that we're dependent on the Lord. And in one sense, the Bible would say to you this morning and to me that you are most sane when you see how much you need Jesus. And that is a very good place to be. 
The faith that approaches Jesus is determined to get to Jesus because it comes from somebody who sees themselves accurately. Uh, the second thing that we can see here is that faith is lived with others. So look at verse 5 of our passage. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. Right? So he sees their faith and then he speaks to the paralytic. Your son, son, your sins are forgiven. The paralytic gets to Jesus. Why? Because he had friends. Friends who brought him to Jesus. The Bible we see right here, knows no such thing as individualistic Christian faith, do-it-yourself Christianity, Lone Ranger Christianity. To believe in Jesus means that you are a part of his family, his body, and we're meant to live out that faith together. To live out our faith in community requires that we do something that we also don't like to do. If we don't, if we don't like to think of ourselves as dependent, dependent and helpless and needy, the other thing that we really don't like to do is to be vulnerable, because vulnerability is hard. And I want you to put yourself in the paralytic shoes for a minute. Try to imagine what life would be like being a paralytic. Like, you are dependent on your friends to get you anywhere you need to go. You can't work, so you are financially dependent. What happens when you get dirty? Somebody has to wash you, to clean you. If you're like me, you're okay helping people. It's nice to help people. It can feel good to help people. In one sense, you wouldn't mind being one of the friends in this story who's got a corner of the bed and who's bringing someone to Jesus. But in one sense, like, we should ask the question, are we willing to be the person in the bed? Are we willing to let people into our lives enough that they can help us and they can bring us to Jesus. And I would bet that many of you here today can think of people that you know in the church who have shipwrecked their lives. People, regular people in the church, elders, deacons, pastors, whose lives have been shipwrecked because they were in a sense spiritual paralytics they were struggling, they were not doing well, and no one knew. No one knew what was really going on. We should ask ourselves, do, do I have people in my life who know my struggles, who know where I'm tempted to feel hopeless or to despair or to start to turn away from the Lord? Do I have people in my life? Do I have friends like that? Am I that kind of friend to others? And in a sense, how does this church do life in such a way that we encourage one another to be vulnerable like this, to share and to receive help from one another. Faith is lived out together. Finally, faith is public. Faith is willing to take risks and especially social risks. I think we see this here. Let me just say this, you don't need to be an expert in first century Jewish culture to know that taking off someone's roof, you know, digging through someone's roof is going to be seen as a socially acceptable practice. That people are going to think that that's totally normal. There's no culture on the face of the earth that sees what these guys are doing as like, that's cool, we're all good with that. No problems here. And while it's true that the Bible does 
command us and lead us to, to be wise and thoughtful about the ways that we express our faith and we do that in the world, Jesus is controversial. And this passage in Mark starts a string of five passages of controversy, and they all center around the person of Jesus. And for these guys, if the option is make sure that I don't do anything that's going to, you know, even slightly move away from social convention or get my friend before Jesus, they're getting their friend before Jesus. Mark's going to highlight this again, so this is kind of a Mark theme, I think, because in chapter 5, there's a woman who has a discharge of blood. She's had this for 12 years, which means that she is ritually unclean. She should not be in crowds. She should not be touching people. And this woman is going to reach out and touch Jesus in a public setting, and Jesus is going to stop, and he's going to have a conversation with her, and he's going to publicly acknowledge this faith. The faith that approaches Jesus, it's active dependence, it's lived with others, and it's public. Now, let's think about uh, the healing that Jesus gives. So when these men in our story, when they bring the paralytic to Jesus, they're obviously bringing him to Jesus for healing. So I want you to imagine the scene where you have now lowered your friend before Jesus, and it's like, here comes the healing, this is going to be amazing, and then Jesus responds, Son, your sins are forgiven. Which, maybe we're used to hearing Jesus forgive sins, but this should be one of those moments where it's like, what? He's a paralytic. We want you to heal him. What are we talking about sin for? Uh, One of my favorite stories uh, about a Christian man named G.K. Chesterton. This was a guy who lived in the, the 1800s into the 1900s. And back in the 1900s, there was a London newspaper, G.K. Chesterton lived in London, uh, and the newspaper invited the readers to respond to a question. And so the question was, what's wrong with the world? And I wonder even how we would answer that question today. What's wrong with the world? Um, Things that people might say, I don't know, uh, political corruption, bad leaders, violent, oppressive governments, religious fanaticism, greed, selfishness, maybe someone would say sin. G.K. Chesterton responded to this, and he wrote a letter, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. Think about that. Me. Not the externals, not all the stuff out there, but me. What's our biggest problem? What is our greatest need? What's the one thing that if you could change about your life, you would change about your life? The one thing that if, you, if this could work out, then I would finally be happy. I would finally be content with life. It's as if Jesus is saying to this paralytic and to us, you got to go deeper. You have to go deeper than the healing that you think you need for your paralyzed body. You have to go deeper. You have to go deeper than the brokenness that you experience in your family, in this world, in your body, in your relationships, your circumstances. Jesus is going all the way deep. He's saying the healing that you need is the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus cares about this guy's health health condition. And if you read Mark chapter 1, he is healing people all over the place. So Jesus cares about the brokenness of the world. 
He cares about the ways that that expresses itself in your life where you feel that this morning, if it's in your job or in a relationship, in your marriage, in your family, with your body. Jesus cares about all of that, but it's as if he's taking this moment to zero in on the thing that we really need most. And I feel like it's almost as if he's saying in this act, there is a disease and a sickness in us that even if he gave us everything we wanted, but he didn't deal with that, he wouldn't really love us. Our biggest problem is not external, it's in us. And Jesus has come to bring healing. And in fact, we see, I think, the sickness in the heart of the scribes and their response to Jesus. Uh, in verse 6, the scribes who were part of the religious leadership of the day, they begin questioning in their hearts, and they say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, in a sense, like, that's the point, Right? The scribes know their Bible and they know that God is the one who can forgive sins and that Jesus, by saying his own authority, not through the temple, not through all the rituals, but he's just declaring this man is forgiven, that he's claiming the sole right of God. But Jesus responds to the scribes in her dialogue in verse 9 with this interesting question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And it's kind of a tricky question because on, one, on the one hand, I think to say simply your sins are forgiven, you could say is easier, right? Because how do you verify that sins are forgiven? There's no test you can do. But in a sense, Jesus says, okay, to prove it to you, to demonstrate that I have this authority, take up your bed, walk, go home. And he does, and everyone is amazed. They've never seen anything like this. Third, I, I just want us to think a little bit about the cost of this healing. This is implicit in the text. I already mentioned this passage in Mark kicks off a section of five conflict stories in Mark, and we see in this interchange with the scribes, I think what we could call the shadow of the cross. We see a foreshadowing of where this whole story is going. And we see a picture of the rebellion and the sickness in our hearts that we so desperately need Jesus to heal. In the midst of this amazing act of forgiveness, the religious leaders are judging Jesus in their hearts. And there is this, in a sense, if you think about it right, an unfounded animosity and hatred that begins here and will only keep growing throughout the gospel. And this is so well pictured in one of my favorite hymns. It's probably my absolute favorite hymn. I sing a portion of it to either Liam or Abby every night. It's called My Song is Love Unknown. And it's written by this uh, man named Samuel Crossman from the 17th century. I want you to listen to these words and put yourself in the place of the scribes and the Pharisees and the people of Jesus' day. Sometimes they strew his way and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, hosannas to our king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. Why, what has my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite? He made the lame to run, he gave the blind their sight. 
sweet injuries, yet they at these themselves displease and against him rise. In a sense, if you want to see how serious sin is, you just look at the religious leaders because these are the guys who knew their Bibles. They knew their stuff. And so when they see someone do the kind of healings that Jesus does and say the things and do the teaching that Jesus does, no one can do this. And yet, their sin has so blinded and hardened their hearts. Their hearts are desperately sick. If you look at verse 10, one last thing uh, from this passage, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And this title comes from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel 7, there is a vision of this Son of Man who is given authority from God, authority to rule over the nations, authority to judge. And Jesus is saying, I am that Son of Man. I'm the one who, who God has given authority and authority to judge. And we see how he uses it in this passage. He uses it to heal. He uses it to forgive sins. But think about the irony of what's happening here. The judge of the world is being judged. And he's being judged for speaking what is true and for doing what is right. He's charged with blasphemy for doing and saying who he is. And this is where the whole Gospel of Mark is going because at the end of the Gospel of Mark, the charge that the religious leaders will get to stick to Jesus and they will condemn him for is blasphemy. And if you look again at verse 8 and you think about this, Jesus knows what's going on in these guys' hearts. And he knows, in a sense, that every time he heals someone, every time he heals a paralytic or a leper or he forgives someone's sins, he is moving one step closer to the cross, one step closer toward his death. This world is fallen and broken, and it is that way because of sin. God made it good, but we have turned away from God. And so the world has brokenness in all sorts of places. How is it possible that healing comes into a broken world and a fallen world? How is it that forgiveness of sins comes into a world? How is it that our sin won't end up crushing us? It's because it's going to crush him. Again, listen to these words from Samuel Crossman. I'll close with this. My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take, fail fresh, and die? In life no house, no home my Lord on earth might have, in death no friendly tomb, but what, what a stranger gave. What may I say, heaven was his home, and mine the tomb wherein he lay. Here may I stay and sing no story so divine. Never was there love, dear King, never was there grief like thine. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I for all my days could gladly spend. Where else can we go and to who else can we turn? Let's go to him again in faith, together with his people, seeking the healing of forgiveness that we so desperately need. There is no one on the face of this earth who ever could or ever will love you like this. Let's take a moment in silent confession and then I'll lead us in prayer.
Our Father, it is good for us to be refreshed in the basics. It is good for us to see afresh what it looks like to trust in Jesus and to be needy and dependent on Him. It is good for us to remember the cost of forgiveness and the healing of our sin and the healing that you will bring to this world that came at the cost of your Son. It is good for us to remember. Help us to be people who rejoice in this and who are truly amazed at your love and your grace to us. We ask that you would do this and work in us by the power of your Spirit unto these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Romans 5, 8, and 9. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Thanks be to God. We come now to uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper where God, as we come to Him by faith in Christ,